Welcome to Project Update, a podcast about the projects we're working on and reworking and reworking. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Pretty good, Dave. I think they call that iterating. <laughs> yes. Yes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel too bad about it. Lots and lots of iteration. Now I'm I'm gonna beat this thing, one way or the other. <laughs> I'm gonna beat it. I just haven't quite yet. Mm-hmm. So uh what have you been working on? So I have a lot to talk about today. And I figured we could dive into FM perception stuff first and then for the second half of the episode, we can circle back to the Babylon JS stuff that I've been working on. Sounds good. So FM perception wise, it's largely been more of the same. Um, I've been kind of approaching this project from, I've mentioned the last couple of episodes of kind of approaching it on two axes and almost thinking about it like a, a 2D chart or a graph where I'm just kind of making progress from the bottom left to the top right. Top right means, you know, version 1.0. And every day or two, I'm moving in one direction. So it's like a little zigzagging line. I'm never really making progress in both directions at the same time. I'm either going up or I'm going sideways. So lots more work, adding more components, um, like feature level components, but also adding more abstract components. And it's been a, a good workflow because every time I add a new... UI, like a new layout to the workflow, I discover more stuff that I need to build up for the shareable part of the project. Mm-hmm. So it's been kind of a fun thing to do that way. So really just more work on expanding the grids and the functionality of the grids. Um, until recently, we've had like AG grid ships with simple rendering types like strings and numbers and date times. Uh, we made custom renderers for Boolean values, um, we, including sorting rules and filtering rules for those. And then I made one for links. I'm not sure if I did that before the last episode or not, but links loosely defined as kind of the FM perception next equivalent of a go to related record step in FileMaker, where you're clicking on this object to literally go to that record. So a primary link on a grid would go to the detail view for this grid item, but there are many columns in many grids that have, you know, say a, a script step has a go to layout uh, script step. We want to be able to go to that script from that row, but also to that layout from that row. Mm-hmm. Um, Very cool. So being able to figure stuff like that out. And then the ones that I worked on last week that took a bit more time were kind of long format columns. So I'm not doing anything special about the columns themselves, um, although we may want to think about that. But things like comments on fields or calculation contents, CSS contents, anything else we're going to see, large blocks of text. um, I didn't want to always require the user to go to the detail view to view that content, especially if they're just flipping through a grid and wanted to, is this the calculation I'm looking for? or let me copy the contents of this calculation, those types of actions. So I made a custom render for those three types and that has a little bit of behavior attached to it where you can, instead of clicking on that to go someplace, it opens a modal on the screen that you're already on. And this is one of those areas where 
there are so many ways to do modals on the web <laughs> in web technology. And, you know, I've done it a number of ways over the years. This one definitely felt like cheating. Like it was way too easy. And this is why I, I always feel like working in Vue.js is just a giant cheat code. Like it's just not fair how simple things are when you think this way. <laughs> um, so rather than a whole bunch of complex CSS and showing hiding conditions, I'm just, I just have a template block. So there is like a, a base container view that is, we're always on. And there's not much that it's rendering itself, but it's rendering a router view with a bunch of other stuff and, and also some toolbars and things like that. So on that component or at that, at that container view, um, I attached a template VF statement that just shows another div, a full screen div. And that div is where we show the modal. And then inside that div is a smaller div that centers itself on screen and takes up like 60% of the vertical height or the, yeah, the vertical height as, a, as opposed to the horizontal height. Um, takes up 60% of the screen and I need to make that a little bit more dynamic. But, uh, and then, you know, it, it'll always show up in the same place. The outer div is invisible, but still responds to clicks. So if you click on the outer div, it'll dismiss the modal. If you click anywhere on the inner div, it'll intercept that click and stop propagation. So you don't accidentally dismiss it. So things like that. And then adding a little X button in the top and just in case people want to close it with a button. You can also close it with the escape key. So just tiny little like life improvement features to the modal to being able to open and close them very quickly. Um, that kind of leads me towards something that I'd want to solve soon-ish, not necessarily right away, mm -hmm. but it's something we need to think about. And it's been tricky to balance when to solve this, but basically how we interact with grids. And I think we need to come up with a system for how we interact with with them that we can apply to all of them and be consistent with. But I don't want to like settle on some rules too early in the project mm -hmm. before we've uncovered too many things. So the way it's worked up until the last week or so, there was a single row action. You click on a row, it goes to another layout. And that's been the only thing that these have done. Uh, I disabled that last week and replaced that with the cell selections instead. So you, it no longer has a row level action attached at all. So now to go to the record for the underlying row, you click on the primary link column, which is almost always the name column. So if, if it's a field, it's the name of the field. If it's a script, it's the name of the script. There's some things that don't really have names per se, but we've got something to show in that first column for every every item. Um, for other columns like the related values, you can click on those to go there. And then everything else, there's nothing happening right now aside from those modal columns. Um, I didn't want to keep the row action there on things that, you know, just like a regular text value or number value, because it was just kind of confusing that like, why can I click on this cell and go this way? And then this special cell and go another way. It just felt simpler for now to keep the primary column as the main navigation. 
So we need to think about what other types of interactions we want with a grid, mm -hmm. um, particularly being able to like select something without actually going anywhere. So say I want to click on a value and copy it or um, select multiple values across multiple rows or columns and copy all of them to the clipboard, things like that. And how would that stuff would interfere with navigation? So there's a lot to think about. I've got all kinds of notes written down on an issue for this, but there's still, I don't know. I, I need to schedule some time with you to go over it, mm -hmm. but like we need to come up with ideas, not necessarily final rules, because mm -hmm. we need several other, we, we should probably tackle layout objects and script steps before we finalize any of these rules. Those are about the most complex I, objects I can think of. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's what I'll be working on with FM Perception. I've got a lot more to say later on, but what have you been working on? Performance. Performance. Yeah. Performance is really bothering me. Yeah. Um, I, uh, the, the performance isn't bad for a perfectly reasonably sized chunk of XML. Mm -hmm. The huge ones that is not where I want it to be. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I kind of just, did some kind of general searching, just playing with ideas, much like I've done half a dozen times in this project. And to be to be clear, you're talking about performance of like loading times, propag propagating the, the app with new data. Right, which is interesting because now that we have save file support, it's completely independent from moving around in the system and looking at your results. Mm -hmm. This is just from, I have a folder full of XML, to I can ask it questions mm -hmm. that time right there. Yeah. So the actual performance of like, we've got a very, very large system with many files that takes a long time to do the initial parse and propagation. But then when I reopen that, it's almost instantaneous and moving through the app. There are a couple of areas where it's slow, like loading fields, but we're not doing any kind of like constraints at this point. It's probably loading a hundred thousand fields. I don't know how yeah. many are there, but more than a web view should load. <laughs> put a cap on that yeah. at some point. Well, and and to a certain degree, that's it, it's it's reasonable and linear. I mean, we, we've got to convert all this data to JSON and then pass it over and then render it. Mm -hmm. Like if it's at that point, if it's acting anything other than very, very fast it's because it's loading a large quantity of data really quickly. Like that all mm -hmm. feels reasonable at this stage. Yeah. So I whipped up a quick proof of concept for, I, I've lost count at this point, how many parser variants I've written. Um, I'm, I'm calling it the nth parser variant. No. The, the good news is at least at some level, I'm kind of running out of options. Somewhere in here, we're going to find the right answer. If you come back next week with the nth parser version two, I'm shutting this whole show down. Well, now I kind of have to. <laughs> um, so this is using a technique that is commonly referred to as unmarshalling. Um, and 
basically how it works is unmarshaling predominantly came out of kind of a Java background, but most environments now support something like it. So what you do is you define a class structure mm -hmm. and then you give it some information that it can use to know where each field's data comes from in the XML. And then you just kind of slam XML through it. And the class structure itself acts as a filter and catches what it needs to. Hmm. It's weirdly kind of hand wavy. Yeah. Um, but it works. Um, so the, the current parser for FM Perception Classic and FM Perception Next uses kind of a generic data structure for the initial parse. It, it is loaded into a data structure, but not something that a user would ever interact with. Mm -hmm. Unmarshalling uses a custom data specific and very complex data structure. Hmm. It's pretty fast. It may even be very fast, though I've gotten hesitant to use phrases like that because I keep being wrong. Um, <laughs> or it's very fast on reasonable data, but we'll see what happens when we throw something horrifying at it. Uh, it's fairly memory efficient. Um, and it's because it, it's streaming the parser data directly to the object. So it never has to load the full XML into RAM and then process it. Hmm. It is reading the XML chunk by chunk and loading the, this new custom data structure as it goes. Oh, nice. It's targetable. So I can do only a portion of the XML, hmm. which is cool. It means I can actually open, it, it, this works in combination with that memory efficiency of the streaming parser, is I can effectively open multiple streams. <clears throat> now, hmm. I had previously not done this because I wasn't thrilled by the performance. But the thing is I've got a new concept for what slow looks like. If it's targetable like that, I wonder if you could rethink some of how FM comparison works. We have stuff in FM comparison where users can say, I only care about these data, just show me these results. I wonder if you could extend this over there to rather than do the initial parse through the entire thing and then discard what you're not showing. Yeah, I've been trying very hard not to think about FM comparison improvements. Okay. Um, for one thing, because it's working and it's working pretty well in FM comparison, but also because that has kind of a different set of use cases mm -hmm. and I have to, my brain has to remain a little bit focused. Okay. If I start looking at every possible use of these, I'm not going to get anything done and I'm already having difficulty with that. <laughs> um, but you're not wrong is that as I'm going through and doing these things, I'm finding all sorts of cool stuff, which may work well in FM comparison. Um, uh, up to and including maybe going back and putting in a SQLite database. Yeah. Well, rather. FM comparison is also only single file right now. Right. So changing that data structure, like loading that massive folder of XML into FM comparison each one of those files would open super fast, but 
opening all of them would probably be the same problem we're having in um, perception. Right. Well, and we'd also have to rejigger the um, FM comparison UI to mm -hmm. properly somehow reflect multi-file stuff. So yeah, that, that it's already a nasty problem in FM perception. If I start considering FM comparison while I'm doing it, the problem space just becomes too big. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to remain a little bit focused. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so I, I can do only a portion of the XML. Um, and there's tools, so the, the, the class structure that this stuff is getting shoved into is really complicated. But there's actually tools to help you write it. Okay. It gets about 80% of the work done. And basically what you do is you hand it sample XML and it creates a data structure that will theoretically store all of it. It's got some bugs. Mm -hmm. and, and so it doesn't get everything, but it does a good enough job that I can kind of run through and, and tweak things. There's some particular things that FileMaker does with the XML that the automated tools don't capture properly, but that becomes its own pattern. And so I can kind of go through and find those. <clears throat> um, so I, and the cool part about doing this then is that it processes all this data, shoves it all into a great big bunch of arrays. So I might be able to do the data load with fewer inserts to actually crawl through this data structure, find all the things that I'm interested in for a particular point, find me the field records, and then inject them all all at once rather than in five or 10 chunks. So that's the upside. The downside is this custom structure is not suitable for final use. So it's too complicated to work with if we're trying to do querying. Um, so I'm still going to have to convert from this structure to the data structure that the SQLite wants. And so it feels like two chunks of complex code rather than one unified chunk of complex code. Kinda. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure that that's correct because I think what I've actually done is I'm still doing both stages today. It's just, they're all in one function. Mm -hmm. It grabs from this data structure, swizzles it around and then preps it for insert. And now I'd have kind of a pre filter and a post filter. I don't know. It would be a lot of work to, rebuild the parser that we've got right now in that. So before I do that, I wanted to spend some time digging into performance tools that were available, mm -hmm. uh, performance analysis tools. And as we've previously discussed, uh, Microsoft has built some really neat dev tools on the Mac side, but they have not made the performance tools generally available. Um, so I, I think I found the right stuff and some documentation that'll, that'll help me get in there, um, which was a, a big piece. Every time I was doing searches for performance tools, I kept finding this, these Xamarin performance tools, which is not really what I want because that's that stuff that isn't as supported. But I think I can use the standard Windows ones. 
<clears throat> so um, step one, use your idea to test FM comparison through this process. Um, what's really cool about that is that in and of itself may just make FM comparison faster. Like that, none of that's wasted time doing that performance analysis and it's educational. Yeah. And if that works, like if using that can make FM comparison faster, then we move on to step two. So build the Windows version of FM perception next. Mm -hmm. We have to do that anyway. No lost time there. And then run that performance testing on FM Perception Next. And then if I can't improve the performance of FM Perception Next in its current form using those tools, rather substantively, it'll be time to go back and play with this unmarshalling parser. Mm -hmm. Probably do something like table fields. It's a, it's a complex enough chunk of data and there's enough of it in a large system that I can just do one small part compare it to the equivalent small part from the current FM perception parser and see if it speeds up or slows down. Mm -hmm. <sighs> um, so finally got my windows all happy. <laughs> I, I got this thing where I, I'm not a daily windows user. Mm, so yeah. um, when I come back to it after a couple of months, all the updates and tweaking stuff and there's parallels updates and so last night was all just kind of leaving the computer for an hour coming back and telling it to run another batch of updates and then leaving and coming back and so it's all happy so everything should be in line for me to go ahead and move into that next step and start looking at fm comparison in the windows.net performance analysis tools. So oh. hopefully I will have something really cool to report next week. Yeah. Sounds fun. It sounds like exactly the kind of work that I'm glad you appreciate doing. <laughs> because I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> well, you know, making that modal appear in the right spot is the kind of work that I'm really glad you appreciate doing. Right. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I also, as promised, spent a little bit of time playing with Babylon JS, nice. uh, but you've been spending a lot of time working on it. Yeah. Yes, I have. So, so what do you got? So I guess before I go and, and fill the rest of the day, um, <laughs> what, did, what did you do with it? Um, well, I mean, I was starting from zero. Like I haven't played with any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So it was mostly trying to find kind of the learning path that I wanted to follow. Mm -hmm. I started with the kind of getting started stuff on the Babylon site and it was a little too generic. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't, I felt like I was learning, not making something. And I want to feel like I'm making something because it makes it, easier for me to get over the humps yeah but i couldn't really find the ray wenderlich style learning path for babylon yeah put a pin in that we'll come back okay to that idea and because i was using kind of just their playground 
space. I initially encountered some high friction for not having visual manual scene creation tools. If I wanted to place an object in the scene, I had to write a line of code. Mm -hmm. And that was a little friction inducing because I'm like, let me just, you know, I want to have two things and have them kind of be in this relationship to each other. And in my head, that's easier when I can just grab the stupid little box and drag it to the side with the mouse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, they do have a set of tools that yeah. there's a, a program you can install called the editor, which does, you know, it basically gives you a, a GUI interface for that type of stuff. But I think I've, I tried it and created a new project and it created a massive node backend TypeScript project. So I don't think you can just point that at a JavaScript file. Okay. Um, I need to look into that more, but when I tried it very briefly, like under 10 minutes, it was like make a new project and it just created a whole bunch of stuff and installed a whole bunch of modules. And it, it took probably five minutes of doing that initial NPM build stage. And then it performed really badly. So I'm like, okay, mm. I'm gonna go back to JavaScript. The weird part that I didn't anticipate was that having that initial friction actually provided some weird knock-on benefits. Mm -hmm. In that I started on procedural scene generation much earlier than I normally would. Yeah was like, I want to make a hundred things on the screen. And with a visual set of tools, I would have taken one thing and duplicated it out 10 times and selected all of those and duplicated those out 10 times and had a nice grid of a hundred things. But that wasn't an option. So I just started writing for loops mm -hmm. to create these things. And I've actually got a link in the show notes to the latest version of my sample code that draws this grid. Okay. Um, and so that was actually cool because almost everything that I'm going to be doing is going to be doing procedural generation. Yeah, I'm not going to have a pre-created scene that has everything in it. I'm going to be taking a, big chunk of arbitrary data and drawing stuff using that. Mm -hmm. So getting straight into that was actually really kind of cool. I, I liked it. Mm -hmm. So I had a 10 by 10 grid of kind of panels, thin, very thin squares, um, rectangles, and drew some text on them. Um, the text quality I would characterize as good enough mm -hmm. like you've looked at it yeah so there is a bunch of stuff in text rendering in webgl um a bunch of stuff particularly in babylon js of how to do optimizations mm -hmm. and a lot of it just involves kind of locking the frame resolution and the camera like syncing the camera settings with the uh point size of the HTML canvas that this is all rendering on. Like there's a bunch of stuff that goes along with it. It's, it's all complex and I haven't done it yet because none of it works in VR. So I just haven't really <laughs> gone there. But for the type of demos you're talking about, that's the stuff we would want to spend some time on optimizing that and basically getting retina level text rendering. Like they, they had some playgrounds that I read through in the getting started guide that pointed it at that direction. And there were some playgrounds of like, here's a side-by-side -side of like, default text rendering versus the high quality text rendering and here are the drawbacks to doing that. 
So that, yeah, you would definitely have to go for that high quality stuff to get something really good. Yeah. If, if you, if you see your, your final perfect, awesome looking version as kind of a complexity level 10, mm-hmm. I went not from zero to 10, but like zero to one. Yeah. I did the very initial tweaks to texture size and, and such like that to get mm-hmm. that stuff there. Um, so, but in, in general, I mean, the, the text is good enough. The performance was outstanding for mm-hmm moving this stuff around at least after load mm-hmm. an initial kind of spinning babylon window icon thing took a couple seconds yeah i'm not sure how much that's the playground environment versus the code that you wrote because i see that on those scenes right well and also in our case we're actually we localize all the resources we use mm-hmm. so there won't be any network performance time downloading stuff remotely yeah. when we're doing it. So I I'm I'm generally pretty pleased with it. It looks like a decent solution to a whole batch of problems that I've got. Mm-hmm. So yeah. But you you did a lot of stuff. Yeah. So I basically turned March into Babylon JS month for Joe. Um, and we talked about it a little bit last episode, but starting Monday, two weeks ago, I've been doing basically two things, uh, Monday through Thursday, an hour a day at the end of the day to learn as much as I can about Babylon JS in general and then specific features. And then each Friday I've been taking the day off of other work and just focusing on building a small project. So I've had two full weeks of that process and I wanted to talk through kind of what I learned and what I focused on. So the first week was the Babylon JS getting started guide, which is pretty, like you mentioned, pretty kind of high level. Here's just an overview written largely for an audience of people who have worked in other 3D environments. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you knew nothing about 3D content creation, I don't think that guide would be particularly helpful. You know, they show you how to write vector threes. They don't tell you what a vector three is. Right. Things like that. <laughs> they show you how to turn on the perspective camera. They don't tell you the difference between isometric and perspective cameras. Um, so yeah, it, I worked through that. I did two chapters of that each day, Monday through Thursday that week, and just basically covered all of it just to get kind of a tour of what Babylon JS has to offer and get a feel for what does this thing include and what does it not include. And I have a much better handle on what it does and doesn't do at this point. Um, so a lot of stuff that I just had never really realized is that there actually is a Babylon JS file type available. You can, in one of those playgrounds or really any Babylon JS scene, you can export that scene or just bits and pieces of that scene to a .babylon file and then reuse that elsewhere. So mm-hmm. in simple terms, I could, you know, make a, say a, a complex 3D object in Babylon JS, maybe right in the playground and be able to share it via the playground sharing system or make a whole library of them. Then I can export that object with 
just the, the mesh data. So say I don't want the material with it, or I only want the mesh and the material. Mm -hmm. I don't want the camera settings or the background settings that I used in the playground. I can export the scene as a Babylon file. And then when I go to import it, I can import just the bits and pieces that I want. And that part was really cool. I didn't really realize yeah. that any, was, any of that was there. You I can also ex export these as a GLB file, which is part of the GLTF standard from the Kronos group. There's like multiple file extensions for this stuff, but basically it's a portable 3D model, 3D scene format for the web. Um, and it's some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, I, I looked at those, at that Babylon file structure and it's just a big chunk of JSON. Mm -hmm. I was almost wondering if, and, and this is, I don't know whether it's going to be easier to um, or, or if there's there's a performance benefit to rendering some of my data to a Babylon file mm -hmm. and then tell Babylon to load that file or if it's going to be easier to write the code that tells Babylon to draw these things. I think the both of them are fun. I think we should do both of them. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, being able to just completely write a JSON equivalent of a scene and then instantiate the scene from data. That could be a really cool tech demo. Yeah. Especially coming from FileMaker layouts or something like that. Yeah, it might also have some cool caching behaviors. Mm -hmm. Like, you know... It, I, I can imagine that creating this JSON file might take the same amount of time as doing the initial drawing. But once I've got the JSON file, I should be able to instantiate a scene from it faster <laughs> than redrawing the entire scene. Or particularly like thinking about all the layout objects on a layout, render each of them as a Babylon scene or as a mesh in a scene and being able to re-render just a field on a layout, not the entire layout. Ooh, or, okay. Yeah, so just saying like, you know, right in your, uh, right in line on the detail view on fields or on layout objects, here is that layout object rendered in the corner. Could be really, really cool. Hmm. We might need a, we might, <laughs> okay, not yet. I'm just hmm. gonna plant the idea. We might need a um, how to, how to describe it a Babylon um, uh, play space mm -hmm. within the project. Yeah, something that like we can feed it a SQL query, <laughs> and if we name fields certain ways, it'll just start drawing stuff. Mm -hmm. hmm. I, I, yeah. Don't do it. Don't yeah. do it yet. Just. Just brainstorming a little bit. Okay, go yeah. ahead. So to go back to week one, um, yeah. so working with files is pretty neat stuff. The modeling features built into Babylon.js are pretty cool. Um, and there's kind of two sides of this. The What you were describing earlier is what I would kind of describe as scene composing, being able to just do the equivalent of what we did in Unity where we make a scene and we drag objects into it and, and place them around and rotate them and stuff like that. 
as kind of like organizing a scene, but not necessarily doing 3D content creation there, where you know, you're pulling in meshes that have already been created. Um, that type of stuff in Babylon.js, just doing that in a, a JavaScript file is kind of tedious. So I could definitely see myself doing scene developments in Blender or even in A-Frame um, and then just exporting from Blender or in A-Frame, you can export the scene as a GLB file. So I could quickly iterate in something that has more of a GUI approach when I already have the models and I just wanna say compose a, a background for a scene with a bunch of trees and clouds and stuff like that. Do that in one place and then import that into Babylon.js as a GLB file or a .babylon file. Um, so I could see that being useful, but Babylon.js has 3D modeling features built in as well. So being able to do a lot of, I'm not an expert 3D modeler, but I can do some basic low poly modeling in Blender and Maya. I have a hard time switching between those two, but it is possible. Um, but I, I don't do a ton of that work because it's so mouse driven and it just wrecks my hand after an hour of that type of work. But Babylon.js has all the stuff that you can do just by writing functions. So a lot of the box modeling techniques that I do for low poly assets are available as functions or as methods on the mesh builder class in Babylon.js. So it's pretty cool to just sit there with two windows side by side, like a, basically a text file on a browser and just writing some JavaScript and refreshing the browser and seeing my changes applied. And because all of this stuff is just functions and JavaScript, I should preface this. I'm not going to do this anytime soon. Mm -hmm. but, and I shouldn't, but I want to. <laughs> but um, I can, I could write my own 3D modeling GUI program that works in a way that's more accommodating to how I work with a computer rather than the, you know, being tied to a three button mouse and all the keyboard shortcuts, but really simplify it. Um, I could see myself writing a, a rudimentary 3D modeling tool for myself that I could use, you know, on a computer or an iPad, but also in VR, but being able to just do the GUI stuff for the stuff that makes sense. Like I want mm -hmm. to be able to drag the stuff around or resize this object or pull this face out or, that type of stuff, but for other options, more complex stuff, just have a little console that I can type JavaScript commands into, or you know, a simplified version of them. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to do that anytime soon, but it definitely, I definitely <laughs> spent some time in bed, laying awake at night, thinking about that. My my brain immediately went to some sort of like uh, Visual Studio Code plugin or mm -hmm. extension that really knew the kinds of properties that you would want to work with just mm -hmm. within that space and optimize the code editing for doing those kinds of translations and such. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of ideas there. So some of the other stuff covered in week one, uh, animations are relatively simple there. You do have to write quite a bit of code, but basically, Animations are independent of the frame rate of the scene. So you can say, I want my animations to run at 30 frames a second or 60 frames a second. And the animations will run at that speed regardless of the rendering speed of the scene. And you okay. could probably still tie it to the scene if you wanted to, 
but being able to detach it from that, that you do really precise things, um, including, you know, being able to do keyframes at just, you know, a frame rate variable times the number of seconds. So say, you know, three times 30 at this keyframe, do this action or perform this or use this value. Mm -hmm. One of the limiting factors about animations is that you can only animate one property at a time. So an animator is for a single property, not for multiple. So you can't say, you can't do like um, a vector-based animation of multiply this vector by this vector, like you could in Unity. You have to do basically three animation streams for the X, Y, and Z portions of the vector. Uh, okay. So it's a little limiting there. But the animation system is so dead simple that it kind of unlocks a whole bunch of possibilities of turning it into a timeline style component where you can basically lock your frame rate to a second based integer. And then you've, you can run as many keyframes through it as you want, but you can also attach events to specific keyframes. So say five seconds in, call this event. And maybe that kicks off another animation on another object. So you could basically think of this as like a, a text equivalent or a JavaScript equivalent of a timeline in like a video editor or an audio editor where you can say from here, start this track playing at 10 seconds in, start this one, fade this one in at 12 seconds in. Um, so I could see myself doing some really neat, you know, scriptable behavior of like moving stuff around, almost like doing little skits, like performing little cartoons with 3D models, things like that can be really handy. Mm -hmm. um, animations could be a bottomless pit. So moving on to the next one, <laughs> <laughs> collisions are pretty basic. It seems like everything gets a, a boxy collider added to it. And I think if you want to go beyond that, you've got to kind of do it yourself. Um, but everything just has a bounding box by default. So if you want to do more advanced collisions, so like if you've got a maybe uh, a table lamp that's shaped a very specific way and you wanted colliders to really hug just the mesh of that object, you'd have to do that collision, the collision stuff yourself. So probably providing a whole mesh with it and figuring out how to build that. I didn't do any of that yet. Skyboxes are a pain in the butt. So skyboxes are the thing you see in the background of a 3D scene. Um, the procedural ones are just colors. So you can just change the color and the app, the ambient color of the background. That stuff is relatively easy. It's just swapping out a different color value, but doing image-based skyboxes, you know, passing in like six cubes on a face, it just was a kind of a tedious process to hmm. setting those up. Um, that, that's actually surprising to me. I, I don't know. It just seemed inelegant to me, like how you have to import all the files independently and then arrange them and pass all this stuff to a, a weird function. It just seemed kind of inelegant, you know, coming from Unity where you can just say, you make a game object, attach the skybox component and drag the textures in, things like that. Right. So it's just not as slick. Lighting is not nearly as good as other platforms, but I think it's as good as it can be in the web. But if you're spoiled with stuff like uh, Unreal Engines, like real-time lighting and shadows, it's nowhere near that quality. 
Okay. Um, shadows in particular are kind of weird where you can attach lights. You can add lights to a scene and only certain types of lights cast shadows at all, which makes sense. You don't want an ambient light casting shadows, but uh, you know, adding a directional light that can cast shadows doesn't immediately cast shadows. You actually have to create a shadow caster for the scene and then attach components to the objects that can cast shadows and then pass them through the shadow casting. Basically, it's like feeding in through a shadow machine, like go ahead and generate shadows for these things. Um, so, which, which sounds weird, but for my purposes, I don't really want layout objects casting shadows on other layout objects. Yeah. Because that's not. visual noise, which sounds great. Yeah. But for our, you know, if we were to make a, a golf game or a bowling game or something like that, mm -hmm. we'd have to, you know, create a, uh, basically a shadow machine generator for that type of stuff. Right. Um, cameras are also kind of weird. I, I still haven't quite mastered moving a camera versus affecting how a camera sees the world. Um, so you can give a camera a position in the scene and then you can adjust the alpha, beta, and gamma properties of the camera's kind of point of view, which, which doesn't actually move the camera. So say you place the camera, you know, 20 units back from world origin. So it's uh, zero comma zero comma 20 looking at a scene. Moving the camera in would be done with the gamma, um, rotating around it would be done with the alpha and moving up and down would be done with the beta, but actually moving the entire camera so that those values reset was kind of tricky. And I think you probably just have to attach it to another 3D object and move that instead. Um, but yeah, that was kind of weird, some weird I, stuff. I bumped into some similar problems. I was, I would, I just, I had this grid, but the, the grid was wrongly positioned relative to the camera. Mm -hmm. It was starting from the middle and going down into the right, not yeah. all centered in the screen. And it was driving me nuts trying to move the camera. Nothing that I did seemed to reposition the camera to where I wanted it to be relative to the grid. I ended up moving the entire grid underneath the camera. Yeah. <laughs> Which worked. Yeah. But, yeah. I think the one thing that is missing from Babylon JS, or at least I haven't found it yet, but it's kind of the whatever the Babylon JS equivalent of game objects are in Unity. So Unity, everything in a scene is an object, and you attach components to those objects. Babylon JS doesn't seem to have that. Like you, you create a mesh object. An item is a mesh, or it's an audio file, or it's a shadow. Like there is no top level thing that they all share in common. So as a result, you end up with some weird behavior of like, I don't know, I'm kind of used to thinking about it in terms of having that entity component system and this doesn't really have an entity component system in the same way. That, so that's kind of a tour through the getting started guide. Um, at the end of that week, I made a simple, very simple scene and I'll, I'll post a link to it in the show notes. It is basically just a breathing timer and this comes about from a book I read a couple of weeks ago about breathing in general. Um, it's not a hippie woo-woo type of book. It's more, you know, going into the physiological aspects of how breath works and how it provides oxygen and removes CO2 from our blood and stuff like that. Um, but basically just looking at different health 
benefits of different breathing techniques. And there's a lot of takeaways from that book, but the, the simplest one was like, if you can't be bothered to do any of this stuff, then just practice this breathing pace of 5.5 seconds in, 5.5 seconds out, basically on a continuous loop. And that will get you around 5.5 liters of air in each breath. And that's kind of the, generally speaking, the optimum. Um, if you're not gonna go crazy learning more advanced stuff. So I wanted to start with that. And the, the little breathe app on the Apple Watch only does five or six seconds, not 5.5. So I just made my own little timer. Um, and that scene is basically, <laughs> it just has a sphere in it and a little timing sequence. And, you know, I basically just passed it an array of times and then animated from a very small object to a much larger object and then back down. And then how I rendered that object, I, I won't go into super details. I wrote blog posts about those stuff. So I'll link to that stuff, but, um, basically just rendered a, a single object in a black background and animated it over time and then used some of those animation events to play sound effects. So there's a, there's three sound effects that happened during the course of the breath. And I made those in GarageBand and just exported some single notes. So yeah, it's, it was a pretty basic project. The entire source code for that project is on the blog post about it. So if you want to see it, it's probably less than 200 lines of code. Uh, week two was a bit more involved um, and had kind of a failed start. Week two, I had two approaches in mind. One was to to do a much more structured course of like going through the entire process of building a game in Babylon JS. I have a tutorial on the website about this. And the other was to just kind of spend the week diving deeper into stuff I had already learned and learning more about you know modeling and things like that. So. I talked to Dave about it and he suggested I go for option one because I have a tendency to go overboard with the other type of learning. So I started with option one and got about 40 minutes into it and just couldn't get anything to work. And partly because this tutorial was all about working in NPM modules and TypeScript and this massive project setup stuff. Like this config file was probably a thousand lines long mm -hmm. of just stuff. And like, I, I just couldn't even get it to build. Finally, I gave up and just went to the repo for the project and cloned the repo and even that wouldn't build. So I'm like, okay, I'm done with this. Like I, I have no intention of working like this in my project, so I'm not gonna deal with this. So Monday was kind of a waste of time, but I got back to it on Tuesday and relatively early in the week, I settled on what I was gonna build for that week. So that really put some constraints on what I spent learning on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, which was really just about composing scenes like we talked about earlier, um, getting assets into a scene and working with them in 3D, positioning them, scaling them, and then working with some camera stuff. So the second project was called Terrarium and it's, it, it's incomplete. I did not get to finish it because I ran out of time. Um, but it's basically just a bunch of low poly assets from an artist I followed for a couple of years on Twitter named Quaternius, who makes some really good, does some really good low poly 3D modeling. Mm -hmm. And I support them on Patreon. So I've got access to a, a giant zip folder of all of the things that they've ever modeled. So I went through that and picked out some stuff that I wanted to compose a scene with. And the first thing I ran into was they provided mostly 
OBJ files or FBX files, I think is the other format. FBX is what you mostly use in Unity. It's a proprietary format from Autodesk, but it's, you know, like a proprietary standard, like something that people can use. OBJ is an older open standard that you see in Unreal Engine and a couple other programs, but it's kind of an older format and it doesn't include materials with it by default. So you have to include an additional .mtl file with it. Babylon.js can import OBJ files and it will automatically get the MTL files allegedly. And I say allegedly because it doesn't always, sometimes it just doesn't get them. Oh. Um, so I initially started playing with OBJ files and then eventually gave up and just went. And fortunately for me, Quaternius included all of the Blender files. They did all of their 3D modeling with. So I just found the Blender equivalent of the files that I wanted and exported them all as GLB files. So it's just a whole bunch of file extensions. Yeah, so the Terrarium demo um, was really mostly about loading data. They have a, an asynchronous asset loader called the Assets Manager. Create one in a scene and then you just call methods on it to load assets from a path in a name variable. And it's, you know, it's promise-based. And I think I told Dave in a text message that like, the assets manager is really cool because it does all the asynchronous stuff for me, but I don't end up crying or punching anything. That's <laughs> like asynchronous stuff that doesn't hurt. Um, so it's it's got some really cool stuff about how it works. It's also got some weird things about it where it doesn't necessarily assign names automatically to the meshes when you're pulling them in from files. So if I wanted to have names in the inspector, I had to name the things myself. But there's some demo code for the Terrarium blog post if you want to see what I'm talking about. So yeah, that scene ended up being, it didn't become a full Terrarium. The idea was to do like a little tabletop scene with a, a kind of a glass dome over top of it. And I didn't get the dome done. And there's only really, the scene is really only made up of some pillars and trees and a sun. I was going to do some animals and you know, some birds chirping and maybe a fox running through the forest type of thing. I just didn't get time to do all of that stuff. It still looks really cool. Yeah, I think it looks pretty good. I'm, I'm really good at picking out colors. I may not be good at any of this other stuff, but I am really good at picking out colors. So um, starting with the color palette on Thursday, I was like, okay, I have a direction to go now. So there's a link. I'll, I'll post a link to the scenes. From a broader standpoint, over the last two weeks, I wrote 11 blog posts. I did a blog post each day for what I was learning and then a blog post for the project days. And then there, there was a bonus, barely even a blog post, but there was something I just kept forgetting how to do. So I just wrote a post about it so I could refer back to it when I forget how to do it, um, which is basically how to export those .babylon files mm. from the inspector. So 11 blog posts, two demo scenes. Uh, in terms of time spent on this stuff, I spent 13 hours working through the educational content. So an hour a day, sometimes I went over a couple minutes and that time includes writing all the blog posts. And then I spent 10 hours doing the development on the two Fridays. Um, so that's where we are so far. And we've got two weeks left to go. I probably won't do it all the way through the end of March. We'll probably stop it um, the Friday before the next episode. So I'll have a couple of days of March where I'm not thinking about this, but Generally speaking, it's going pretty well. You're not thinking about this. <laughs> well, when I'm not working on this specific project. 
this sorry. being the, the month of Babylon JS project, not yes. working in Babylon JS in general. This project is particularly interesting because of the way that I've decided to work. Like I'm not doing any of this to build games or consumer software or anything like that. I'm doing all of this in with the purpose of becoming more valuable as a consultant and being able to offer, like add this to my tool set of stuff that I do as a consultant. So with that in mind, it's really in one sense, narrowed the field of view of what I can do, but also like expanded it to the type of stuff that I'm already kind of good at. So you mentioned earlier, there are no tutorials. There's no like Ray Winderlich of Babylon JS. And I think that should probably be me. Like I have a lot of work to do there, but if I can keep going on this, I think the one thing that I could add to the community a lot earlier than committing code to the repo would be writing better documentation because um, their documentation is adequate, but it is in no ways good. Um, particularly like those getting started articles, like it will tell you what you need to know, but it's written by somebody who hasn't poked their heads out in a long time. And realized right. like, hey, I don't, this isn't written for a general audience of people who know nothing about this stuff. So I think that's probably something I should think about. Um, I'm going to keep blogging on my site about it, but maybe I'll eventually write a, you know, a small project of a, you know, zero to 25 rather than 60, just here's how to get started with Babylon JS and here's some basic stuff and come up with a step-by-step tutorial on how to build some scenes and, do something like that and maybe send that to the Babylon team to see if they want to post it or just post it on my site or YouTube or something like that. The other stuff I want to work on is just kind of a hybrid of like how to, how to do common things in Babylon JS as I'm figuring out good workflows for them. Um, and just how to make this stuff available to other web developers and designers who just want to add Babylon to a project and not necessarily like a lot of them, what I'm doing is very ambitious you know, I want to completely redefine interacting with computers and VR. That stuff <laughs> is further down the road. But what can I do in the short term to add value to that type of community? So yeah, a lot, a lot to do there. So if we have time, and I can cut this out if if it doesn't make sense, but I have a project to pitch you with Babylon JS, something that you and I can work on together um, that doesn't fit into either of our current projects. Okay, hit me. So, and I think it actually works out well with our skill sets. I want to build basically, basically a, like a project level assets management database or application. This is something that kind of comes out of working with these models. If I'm, if I'm working on a scene, so say I'm, I'm making a short animated video and I've got 10 models I'm using and some textures and a skybox and all that type of stuff. I want to be able to keep all of those together in the same place maybe I have to do attributions to the artist that created them, or I need to remember where I got them, um, things like that, but also being able to include the models themselves. So at its most basic level, a database of, basically a database of container fields of files and then metadata about the files. So the, the name, the path on the disk where it was from or the URL that you got it from, any kind of licensing information that goes with it. And then being able to create a project and say, add these assets to this project as I'm going, and then be able to generate like a credits file or an attribution mm -hmm. file 
from that at the end, but also being able to generate specific outputs of like export all of this into a folder so I can upload it or FTP it to my web server, that type of thing. And I think it could be fun because we could build something kind of like we're doing with FM perception, build an SQL light backend for the assets. And I think just store them in the database as base 64 and decode them on the front end when we need them. Um, and then build a, a very simple user interface, like a master detail view where you, you're you on a project and your list view on the side is all the assets for that project. And then a detail view to render a preview and show the metadata. And that could be, it could be fun to do because we could use Babylon.js in this project, but it wouldn't be constrained to Babylon.js stuff. So it doesn't have to be assets for 3D modeling projects. It could be for a FileMaker database and here's all the icons I'm using and here's all the sample code that I'm referencing um, mm -hmm. type of thing. So yeah, that's my pitch on a potential hobby project. If you're not interested in doing it, then I'll probably do it in FileMaker because I'm too lazy to do all the other stuff. <laughs> um, we could do it as a, the reason I think it should be a local tool is because I don't want to manage other people's data on right. a web server. So being able to do it as a SQLite database with an installable Mac and Windows app, um, I think we could get something proof of concept done in a relatively short period. Whether or not we ever turn it into a product is another question, but it could be fun to make a little tool that we could you know, send out to our other developer friends. So what do you think? Conceptually, I like the idea. Yeah. Um, and I think it could be fun. Um, my biggest difficulty right now is focus and I've got, I, I'm having enough trouble putting time into my core projects Yeah, that adding another side project doesn't sound like a good idea right now. Yeah. That's why I was trying to pitch it as a developer tool. Did you have a hard time saying no to developer tools? <laughs> well, and I'm having a hard time saying no to it right now, mm -hmm. which is part of the problem. Well, if it helps, um, I won't be ready to work on it until April. So you have got a couple of weeks to think about it. Okay. I, I was going to say it, it, it's, I'm thinking more like May or June. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, let's, let's get me, uh, vaccinated and out of my freaking house <laughs> and see if I get a little bit of my brain capacity back. Now I'm just thinking of your house with like a giant collider on it. And then I I'm testing for collisions for when you leave the collider and, and it just like triggers the start of the project. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah, sure. Sounds, sounds good. That's how that works. Right. I, I, I think we call that geofencing within that specific. Mm hmm application but sure um but no i'm i'm not opposed to it and it could be fun to i mean i love specking out new projects and mm -hmm. planning things out and seeing what we want to accomplish and i love internal tools because they don't have to work 100 percent mm -hmm. yeah if it accomplishes 90 percent of the goal and it's got some rough edges who cares because it's working for us yeah like this project really came from an idea for myself of like i've got all these glb files but like in finder there's no preview for them um there is on windows for 3d files but in in finder there is no preview for mostly 3d model mm -hmm. formats so i can't i have to open every file 
and then you know, turn on the rendering in Blender and all that type of stuff. So I figured I could just, you know, make a little FileMaker database of all of these things and add a web viewer that could just render a basic background and whatever, you know, if there's material attached, use the material. If not, just make a generic material. So just so I can, when I'm looking for models and, you know, comparing, I've got 20 different trees, which, which tree am I after today? Being able to look through them and preview them. Yeah. Um, that's where this idea came from. And then I started thinking about it in terms of like making that into a project structure where you can make those attribution files and things like that. But it can be, it, it probably should be a web app. I just don't want to manage a web app. So, right. I'm lazy. Although we know developers who do. So maybe I could uh, talk some of them into this Eden. <laughs> if you're still listening. Oh no, he just nerd sniped Eden. <laughs> now we just have to see if the shot hits. 